To mark the end of season two of Inside the Crime, we held a special event at one of Charles's old haunts. It was called Bartley Duns in 1982. It's now Bartley's Lounge at the Grafton Hotel in Dublin. We wanted to bring the curtain down in front of a live audience by going deeper inside the crime and I was delighted to be joined on stage by a panel of guests. Andrea Gilligan kindly agreed to host it and for those of you who couldn't make it on the night, we decided to record it so you don't miss out. Everyone loves a good recap so we kicked things off with a quick reminder of the key elements of the Charles Self murder. Did you hear about Charles? He was murdered last night. Charles Self was stabbed 14 times. Would have killed him instantly. It always surprised me to be told that Charles died at the end of the stairs, that Bertie didn't hear him, you know. You're not looking at your run-of-the-mill murder when you see the overkill. Well, are you afraid that this man might strike again? That possibility exists. It was bad enough to be dealing with the fact that you came from a very small community, but then now on top of it you had a murderer out there. It wasn't the time to be gay in Ireland. There was a murderer on the loose and somebody else might be targeted. I remember him saying the most exciting part was the chase. And did somebody pick up the phone? It just rang out. I didn't get through. The Guardi, after all, are merely the servants of the state and the state was institutionally homophobic. You know, I mean, if there's a car crash, you don't start interviewing every car owner in the country. You actually look at the crash. You could have a kind of fear if you did get on the wrong side. A lot of gay men, they were so angry and this feeling, this is happening too often. There's something systemic here. And then they said, do you mind if we ask you a question? You wouldn't happen to be one of them boys yourself, would you? They now had a map of who was who and who was connected to whom. The drawing and the description of the person's voice doesn't match with the person that came home in the taxi. There were a man being slaughtered downstairs and a man laying in bed upstairs not hearing it. Charles deserves to be remembered. And he is. It's never too late to come forward. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome the man behind the podcast. Will you please give a warm welcome to Frank Rainey. Cocktail and all for the special occasion, Frank. (laughs) Is that an odd... To the event tonight, yeah. The guys here at the Bartley's uh, Lounge have done a special cocktail called the Charles. Um, everyone that we spoke to who knew Charles and who socialised with Charles back in the 1980s, they all said the same thing. He loved Blackbush and the guys have made a special cocktail here called the Charles and I can highly recommend it. Fantastic, yeah. We'll try that later on for sure. Um, listen, there's loads to talk about tonight, but I suppose one of the first things that really struck me in listening, and I'm sure many of the audience here this evening... Why did you decide to make this episode, this series, about the murder of Charles Self? Well, firstly, when um, Ashling and I sat down and Ashling produced uh, the series with me, um, we wanted to do an unsolved case because we thought that, you know, there had to be a greater purpose to the story and it was the same in a very different way with season one. Neither of us wanted to tell a story just for the sake of telling the story because, you know, you're re-traumatizing people, you're, you know, you're bringing up all of that horror again. And we really felt there needed to be a greater purpose. And we saw the sense in covering an unsolved murder case from that point of view. So the first thing that I did was um, 
I actually went to uh, Garda.ie and Garda Shia website and looked at the list of unsolved cases. And for some reason, Charles has really stood out for me. And I think, I think the reason it did was it was, it was one of only a handful of cases on that list that I didn't immediately recognise. Mm. And when I, went, when I went looking into the case and when we started researching it, I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of, of um, Charles Self and what happened to him because, you know, as, as many of you have listened to the podcast series, it was an incredibly tragic story and there were so many other elements to it that we felt were worth exploring. But you have to remember that in 1982, like Charles was murdered in January of 1982, so at the beginning of the year, and 1982 was remembered for lots of reasons. You had a very unstable government under Charles Hahi at the time that dominated news headlines. You also had the Gubu murders. Malcolm MacArthur went on a rampage during the summer of 1982. He killed two people. And then, of course, you had the murder of Declan Flynn in Fairview Park in Dublin. We discussed that in the podcast and that of John Roach down in Cork. So it was a very busy year. And also, I guess, through our research and through speaking to the likes of Tony Walsh and others who took part in, in the podcast, we quickly realised that, you know, for a gay man to be murdered in 1982, wasn't the big news story that it should have been. And, you know, we often wondered if this had been a straight man working as a set designer for RT who'd been murdered in such a brutal way and his killer was still out there somewhere, we think it would have gotten off a lot more coverage. Like even through our research and looking over like, you know, archive news reports, there weren't that many of them. And we really got the sense that Charles was kind of forgotten through the passage of time. So first and foremost, we wanted to introduce people to Charles. Mm. And, and, I, and I'd like to think we've done that really well. And we were always mindful of keeping Charles front and centre yeah. throughout the entire series. A lot of those themes you've mentioned, we'll, I suppose, explore those with the panel as well, you know, in, in a little bit more depth uh, later on tonight as well. But it is a very different story to the first, the first episode of Inside the Crime and the first series and, and the Whelan family. Is there a different approach required then by, by you and production in terms of telling a story that... I suppose really it doesn't have a conclusion, like it, it hasn't been before the judicial system. There's, there's been no conviction. So is there a different kind of production sense in that? Like, Absolutely, I think so. I mean, again, with season one, we were looking at a story where the person responsible for killing Sharon Whelan and her two girls back in 2008 um, was you know, brought to justice, um, albeit... Speaking to the Whelan family, they felt that the justice system didn't go far enough. And I suppose when I talk about greater purposes, when we at Inside the Crime approach these stories, the greater purpose in relation to that story was, you know, a family had welcomed us into their home to share their unbearable grief. And they did that for a greater purpose. It wasn't just to re-traumatize themselves and to tell a story. We wanted to shine a spotlight on an area of law that we felt needed to be reformed. Um, steps are being taken to maybe address some of the issues that we brought up in season one of Inside the Crime. With season two, every good story has a beginning, a middle and an end. Charles Self's story doesn't have an end. Mm. So it was a very different approach and we found ourselves approaching it almost like one of the detectives back in 1982. We put every piece of evidence under the microscope. We pulled at the loose threads, um, those threads that are still hanging here 40 years later. We looked at suspects, potential suspects, people of interest. We introduced those or interviewed those closest to the case. 
we approached it as if we were investigators mm. with the you know most open of minds. So it was a very, very different approach where I suppose there is an element of looking at the law in season two, but in season one, certainly, there was an awful lot more legal research involved. Yeah. How difficult was it to get your hands on that evidence? Because there, there is like there's an incredible, um, I suppose, level of access, you know, to the information and, and the files. And like, how hard was it to get that? Because that's not always accessible. Well, now as a journalist, Andrea, you should know better than asking me to reveal I, I, I know, I know you too well, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know what? We didn't find it as difficult as we would have back in the 1980s. And I think the reason for that is we're lucky that Angarda Shiakana of 2022 is much better than the force that would have investigated Charles Seff's murder back in 1982. And there are people and there are Gardaí out there who want to see Charles's case being brought to some sort of conclusion. So I know that's kind of um, a roundabout way of answering your question. But certainly when it came to the research, um, painstaking research because of the fact that there wasn't an awful lot of it when we started. But then I suppose the more you find, the more you get. Mm. And we were lucky enough to have access to people like Alan Bailey, who was willing to come on the record, and others who maybe weren't, where we could corroborate pieces of evidence. And Ashling and I have curious minds, and we would pour over all of the evidence on her kitchen table, and we would look at it as if we were one of the investigators. And if we met, you know, a brick wall, or yeah. if we had a question that maybe we'd put to somebody like Alan Bailey or somebody else off the record and they will say, you're on the right path, you're on the right path. The funny thing is, like, through our research, a lot of the questions that we had were a lot of the questions that the cold case unit in 2008 had too. Mm -hmm. And there's no comparison between the investigation that Alan ba Bailey led in 2008 and the one in 1982 where you feel like there was too much of a narrow focus um, on behalf of that investigation team. Again, we don't know why they seem to come up with a narrative very early in the investigation. And the worry with that is when you narrow your focus that much, you don't open up your mind to the possibility that something else happened or somebody else was responsible. I have to ask you about Christine Falls. You don't actually expect anyone in the room to believe how you met. <laughs> you Honestly, asked me no. about Christine Falls <laughs> at about three o'clock in the morning after our Christmas party uh, because you didn't yeah. believe it. I didn't believe it. I still don't believe you, to and be honest with and, and and it is you truly out of our yeah residence. It it is it is truly unbelievable, but I can tell you it genuinely happened. And there are some spooky elements about this story and how we went about it. Firstly, I mean earlier you asked me how this story, you know, how we chose this story, and I really do feel that this story chose us. And I think if there was anything to support that mad statement, it will be how Christine Falls came into our lives. You know, Ashling and I were doing our research for the podcast. We were looking out for contributors. And what we really wanted to do was we wanted to find people who knew Charles, who socialised with Charles here in Barclay Dons back in the day, in the Bailey, in the gay-friendly bars around Dublin. We wanted to know the people who worked with him in RTE. And that was tricky enough because 40 years on, people had moved on. It was hard to track them down. But through our research, people kept saying to us when we would ask them, do you know anyone who knew Charles personally as a friend? We really wanted him to be front and center of the podcast. And everyone was like, have you spoken to Christine? Christine Falls, have you, you know, have you got a number for Christine Falls? 
we tried so hard to find this woman, but eventually had to give up after a number of weeks. My um, girlfriend is on the residence association for the street that we live in, and um, she dragged me reluctantly along to a street party uh, over the summer. And it was the best street party that I've ever been at because I met Christine yeah. Falls. It's incredible. Like it's- she, she, she came over and she joined a group that were actually introduced herself. She said her name is Christine. I've said this in the podcast, but I think it's worth repeating again. She started chatting. I mean, like it meant nothing to me. You know, she'd introduced herself first name only. And it was only later when we just happened to talk about Belfast and I'd spent a bit of time up there working. She lived there and she revealed that her surname was Falls yeah. and I almost fell off the chair. I had a couple of gargles on board <laughs> at that point, but I mean, it wouldn't have taken much. I just couldn't believe it. And then, I mean, there were a few people around us and I was conscious of that and I didn't want to embarrass her. And if I was wrong, I didn't want to make everyone feel uncomfortable. But as soon as I got the opportunity, I just said, did you just say your name is Christine Falls? She looked absolutely terrified. She reluctantly <laughs> nodded. And she said, yes. And I told her, I'm a journalist. I'm working on. And she cut me off. And she goes, Charles. I said, yes. And she came over to the house and we spoke to her. Ashing and I spoke to her for hours. She couldn't be here this evening. She texts Ashing to wish us the best with it. And she's, she's very happy with with what we've put yeah. out there. Um, I want to bring in some of our esteemed panel members as well. So if you can give a warm welcome, Frank, stay with us. Uh, we've got Tony Walsh, gay rights activist and also featured in the podcast. Tony, if you'd like to make your way up to the stage. Yeah. Trino O'Connor, criminologist. And we have um, Hugh Wallace, architect and contemporary of Charles. Listen, thanks a million for, for joining us here this evening. There's, there's so many different themes and, and areas to, to explore tonight, but I suppose maybe one of the first things, Tony, that, that struck me anyway in, in listening and, and perhaps for the audience as well tonight was that we're talking about something that happened less than 40 years ago. Um, and I just find, like, I find that incredibly, you know, incredible because it's so, it's so, so recent in, in many ways. You know, like, do you feel things have changed but before I answer that question, I really need to put on record my gratitude and admiration to Frank and Ashling and the News Talk team for doing the LGBT community and Irish society an enormous favour in investigating this particularly difficult period. Well but yeah, to answer your question, yeah. Uh, to answer your question, um, there regrettably seems to be this circular nature to some of the problems that people face. Um, we're still struggling to get a political administration on board with the need for comprehensive hate crime legislation. So, it, like, living in Ireland in the 1980s, can you maybe give us an insight into, I suppose, maybe just some of the experiences that, that, that you had to deal with or some of the, you know, the prejudices that you would have experienced in, in that time? The British legislation from the late 19th century, it wasn't really, the impact of the legislation wasn't um, about the number of men, too many men, who were sent to prison every year for consensual sexual offences. It was about the corrosive impact of the legislation and how that played out in censoring Irish society, censoring statutory Ireland. It's the timeline of that, you know, and, and how, I think when you look at just how recent that is, that I think kind of strikes a, a, a lot of people as well. Hugh, maybe just to pick up on some of the points that Tony mentioned and to give us a, you know, a little bit of your experience um, that you would have dealt with. I was just thinking like tonight we're here in the Grafton Hotel and obviously this is something that we know about. It's a place we know about from the season in Bartley's Lounge. But is there a kind of, a, is there a sort of, a, is there a weird sense being back here? 
Well, there's a disappointment that Barkley Duns is gone, to be totally honest. <laughs> it was a great bar. You know, it was 80 metres long and it was quite narrow. And, and, you know, my memory of being on the gay scene was one of being relieved that I'd actually find out I wasn't alone. And, you know, Barkley Duns was great. And even better was all the heterosexuals were in the back having illicit sex with their secretaries. So I, I just loved it. <laughs> but the, you know, I go back to 82 and I think the document that you've done is amazing. And, and it's like bringing, it does bring you back, mm. you know. And Charles's mur- murder was horrendous. And, but I have to tell you personally, the murder of Declan Flynn had more of an impact on me because here is somebody who's out having a walk in a park and randomly gets tacked and is murdered and the perpetrators get suspended sentences. And that, to me, was a real slap in the face for the gay community. It was like, well, that's acceptable. The judge obviously thought it was acceptable. And that had a much more profound effect, yeah. I, I have I, I to tell you. I think the comments, the comments of the judge as well, I think, really had an impact on the gay community as well. But a year previous to that, in 81, there was a man called Eddie, I can't remember his surname. Eddie Cash. Yeah, he had been attacked in Fairview Park, and he had been standing outside Fairview Park warning people not to go in there mm. because there was gay bashing going on. So I think that sent a message to the gay community that... They mattered less. Their lives, they were uttered. They were marginalised further and stigmatised when a judge sits there, gives suspended sentences. It's like, and I suppose maybe it's worth at this point kind of reminding ourselves of the legislative position at the time because, you know, like in one way, people are being asked to come forward and to report crimes and incidents that happen and whether it's an assault or or a burglary. Um, And then at the same time, like you're nearly given a witness statement that could ultimately implicate you. Do you know what I mean? Like you could essentially be be prosecuted for coming forward and and telling a story that happened or or an incident that happened to you. So you might really just give us a a little bit of an insight into the the relationship between, I suppose, the gay community and the justice system at the time of Charles Self's murder. So up until 93, it was illegal to be homosexual in the country. And for people who had jobs in institutions like schools, for example, um, many will remember, and you probably will remember these guys, some people would be called in for the chat. And that meant that if they were gay and they were openly gay, they could lose their jobs because they were illegal in some way. So when when Charles was murdered and the Angarda Shikana brought in, I think it was 1,500 men, there was some kind of suspicion and... Um, we don't know if it was correct or, up or not, but there was a suspicion that the guards were creating a dossier on the gay community, because the gay community at the time was very small, openly gay people, but you can be sure it wasn't representative. There was a lot of people still um, in, in, the, in the shadows and afraid to come out. So the relationship between Angarda Khan was very much of aggression, uh, was very much of oppression, and um, there was a lot of victimisation of gay people. So they weren't protected. And we know <clears throat> from research over the years 
that actually when somebody is a victim of a crime and you're gay, they actually do need more protections under the law because for some people you don't know their home experience, they may still be keeping um, the homosexuality to themselves. So they do need a lot more protections. Even now in 2022, we need to be much more sensitive to people's um, lived experience at home. So the relationship wasn't very good. And I suppose when, when you put that in the context then of the investigation that happened into the murder of Charles Self and you talked about 1,500 or so men that were questioned effectively and this kind of fear of the, the dossier that was being collated. Um, Tony, what was that like for people at the time? Like, I mean, that, that just... Well, personally, been... personally, I think I, I got away from it. I was never asked down, I think, because I, I at that point, I would have been like 1982, I was 21... I was already several years involved with the Hirschfeld Centre, Dublin's prime LGBT community centre, very, very publicly active. Uh, uh, active. Um, and I suspect that that may have been the reason why I was, wasn't asked down. But actually, some of my political uh, colleagues were. And one of them, he was Tony O'Shea, the manager of the Hirschfeld Centre, was actually told when he arrived down in Pierce Street um, that he was considered a suspect and asked to give his fingerprints and um, be, allow himself to be photographed. You, you, you can't really parse Charles's murder without locating it in the context of all of the other stuff that was happening in Ireland at the time. Mm. And Frank, in, in his opening remarks, you rightly talked about, about the, the, the Gubu situation, the political administration, everything. But there was also the overspill of violence from the north, a police on tenderhooks because you had, you had the hunger strikes. There was a real talk of civil war breaking out. I remember my mother phoning me from Clonmel going, if there's a war, I'm going to hide you. And I'm going, don't catastrophize the situation. It's not quite that bad yet. And I, I can't believe my mother is actually talking about an charming woman from, from Rath Mines in the safety of, of, of Clonmel, 300 kilometers from Belfast, is actually talking about hiding me because the civil war is about to break out. But you know, there was, it was, it was, and you, then you have the massive emigration, you have the wasteland mm. of Dublin city centre, avaricious property speculators, the, the wasteland, you know, fed into our sense of desperation. People like you and I just try mm. to push through that grimness. Just to train on a point I wanted to pick up on, Frank mentioned as well in the outset, you know, there there were other other murders that year as well, aside from Charles Self. Um, I suppose the reality is, given the legislative position that we had in the country at the time, there were probably so many more. And and yeah. we just, I mean, will, ne will we ever know? Like, No, we'll never know. There was definitely under-reporting of murders that were because of somebody's sexuality, absolutely. Because, and it still is now today, because not everybody is able to express themselves the way they the way they want to because of their own personal circumstances but i think also um to situate it as well we have to remember how catholic ireland was at the time too and how much impact the church had on civil society mm. on how people um what they accepted as a norm and there was a moral panic in some like small villages around around the country and people will remember and i'm sure you guys remember people talking about you know you don't want to go in that bar you might catch gay I mean, that, that was the kind of things that people would say. And that kind of really insulting rhetoric was there and laughed at, even within institutions, because we had, you know, homophobic institutions and um, all of the statutory agencies. So it, it, it was a really difficult time. Do you know what struck me, actually, and, and Trina, maybe, you know, you'd be able to share your thoughts on this was 
we, we found a document, a piece of work from the Office of the State Pathologist, and this was um, research into homophobic murders mm. um, where sexuality was a potential motive. And looking through it, I think it ranged from maybe 1977 to 1984. So clearly Charles Self and Declan Flynn and John Roach mm. would have featured mm. in that piece of research. And one thing that struck us was the level of violence yeah. used. Overkill. Yeah. Absolute yeah, overkill. Yeah. Yeah. So o- overkill is about an annihilation yeah. of the victim. Um, and very often that comes from the ego of the perpetrator. So it's, it's an annihilation of themselves and what they're dealing with themselves. I think in Charles's murder, um, because it was a stabbing, I don't know for sure if he was unconscious before he was stabbed. I know there was no defensive wounds. I don't know if we know for sure um, if he had passed out to drink or if he had been knocked out. But the fact that a knife was mo- um, used in, in the murder... It, knives are uh, commonly used in an intimate setting. They're, they're a, a weapon that's used when you know somebody intimately and the fact that it was a knife from the house. So, um, yeah, that annihilation piece and that overkill is, is not unusual when somebody wants to completely obliterate what they see as something that can be harmful to them and it's a projection piece. Um, that's mainly what we would kind of look at in that case. It was one of anger. Yeah. That 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 murderer Charles was one of anger, mm. and he was probably angry at themselves. Mm. Um, and I think that you know, as as everyone like people here don't have a clue. Like forty years ago in Ireland, if 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 your hubby died, and the wife got nothing, the wife got nothing in the will. Mm. And it's it's women weren't reason. allowed into bars you know the the women were subjects so you know they were sub part of the gay and and what what was going on was actually women's liberation was also taking place at the same time so it was an amazing complex Mm. situation and we need to go thank god we got out of that Mm. we've moved on 40 years and we've made huge strides but there are still strides have yeah. to be made. I, I, there was this shame attached to it, which was, you know, because of the religion there. But, well, I, I heard a funny story. Um, you've just reminded me, um, one of our contributors, I didn't share this uh, on the podcast, but said that in this very bar, Bartley Dunn, the owner, came out of the bar and stopped two men kissing, kissing at the bar counter. And they said, what are you doing? And Bartley says, Mr. Dunn apparently says, um, what are you doing? It's not that kind of place. Correct. And they turned around and said, look around you. What are you talking about? Chirorchi <laughs> <laughs> came in to do um, a, a program. And after he was so excited they were coming in to do a program, then they said, what are you here for? And he said, we're discussing gay Dublin. He said, oh, this isn't a gay bar. This is for thespians and artists. So I have to tell you, by the time the mid-80s came, uh, I loved it. I was so happy. I was in Ireland. I was working here. Everyone knew I was gay. It didn't matter in my profession as a creative. Mm-hmm. If I was a solicitor, I was fucked. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> thankfully, I was an architect. 
<laughs> and, and, but, but honestly, that's, that's the truth yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. I thank God I didn't live in the UK. Yeah. Because but, they, but it's so they true were because demented about going, following people to oh, toilets. Often RTE, where Charles worked, was yeah. kind of considered a safe haven yeah. Yeah. for gay yeah. men. Yeah. Yeah. It was called yeah. Fairyland for good reason. No. I, I didn't want to say it, but I'm glad you did. So, but so, if, you, if you were a young person from a working class area, living in an environment um, where there's toxic masculinity there, it even would have now. been horrendous. No, no, even, no, no, now. even now. Even now, even yeah. now it would have been horrendous, yeah. I want to just chat a little bit about the investigation, because that's a huge part of the journey throughout the entire season as well, um, and the various different episodes, Frank. Um, you called the last episode Bertie. Mm. He's a thread throughout. Yeah, he is. And for lots of reasons, and I should preface it by saying, and I was at pains to say this in the last episode, that Bertie Tyrer was never charged with anything. He was never arrested. He was never questioned as a suspect. He gave witness statements. But in 2008, by the time the, you know, cold case unit came to look at Charles's case, and it was one of the first cases that they looked on at after that unit was set up, um, you know, they would have liked to have gone back to speak to Bertie about a couple of things. They found it incredible, as I did. And I think we took a forensic approach. And at times when you're listening to the podcast, you're probably wondering, why the hell are these guys talking about the window again? Why are they talking about the house? Why are they talking about the proximity between where Bertie was sleeping and where Charles was Do you know, just dead? on that note, if you don't mind, I'm going to interrupt you because we have actually um, some photographs and a map here that I just want to put up of the muse that will just give you a kind of a better sense of the description that we hear in the podcast. Sorry, Frank, if you want to pick up. Yes, so Charles's body would have been found at the bottom of the stairs there. And his body was positioned in a way at the bottom of those stairs that you couldn't actually open that front door. Um, Bertie's room, now Bertie didn't live there. Vincent Handley lived there. Mm. And Vincent Handley's room was just at the top of those stairs. You take a right and that was, that was his room. So that's where Bertie had been sleeping. And the guardy at the time, the detectives in the cold case unit that went back looking at the case all those years later in 2008, and indeed myself and Ashley when we were looking at it, found it pretty incredible that, you know, you wouldn't have heard something happening at the bottom of the stairs there. Bill Maher lived there for six months. He was a very good friend of Charles. He found that um, incredibly difficult to get his head around too. In fairness to Bertie, Bertie was hard of hearing. Um, Alan Farkasin was a very good friend of Bertie Tyra. He worked with him in RTE as, as well. And we interviewed Alan and he features heavily in the final part of the episode. And while he did accept that it was quite unusual, he did say that Bertie was hard of hearing. Look, all we did was look at the case, look at the files, look at the information that was made available to us, speak to the people close to the case and ask questions. We didn't cast aspersions. We didn't point the fingers because the reality is 40 years on, we don't know who did it. Mm. But I think it's fair to say that in 1982, the guardie who investigated Charles Self's murder, for whatever reason, came up with one theory and they never strayed away from it. Mm. I'm not a detective. I'm a journalist. I ask questions. You know, if there's a gap in a story, I try my best to fill it. You ask the right people the right questions and you hope you get the answers. And I'm sitting here before you today to say I still have questions. What was that theory? The theory that they... The guardist theory in 1982 yeah. was that Charles Self had picked up a young male prostitute, a rent boy, on the keys that he had brought him home, that he'd be murdered in his home and that this person had made his escape 
through the window. And again, we were banging on about this kitchen window mm. an awful lot. We went out to the muse to see if we could have a look at this window. For all intents and purposes, Bill Maher said there was no way somebody could have got out that window, that whoever killed Charles must have went out the front door. And there was evidence to support when the cold case review team went back and looked at it. There was evidence to support that fact that nobody would have got in or out that window. So what you have to ask yourself is, did Charles Self's killer go out the front door? Or was Charles Self's killer still in the house? Mm. And the investigation team in 1982, if they tried to answer those questions, they didn't try very hard. They just assumed that, look, this is a gay man. He brought home a rent boy. This rent boy turned out to be a violent roller who just wanted his money. Things got out of hand. He killed him. There was maybe this weird sex act going on in the living room. That's it. Live by the sword, die by the sword. That was kind of the attitude. I think that if the case was investigated now, and I, I, I do, like I see the work of Angarda Shiokana in 2022. Yeah. They do remarkable work. And they're a lot more specialised than they were in 1982. There is a lot less prejudice. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of, there would have been a lot more attention and focus put on other theories yeah. as opposed to focusing on just and one. Th that's a big part of it, I suppose, Trina as well, like in the sense that we're talking about an investigation from the early 80s and the limitations around like everything that we take for granted when we yeah. look and read and hear about, you know, crime cases before, uh, criminal cases before the courts. Um, like with the passage of time, as Frank said, like it would be just looked at through an entirely different lens. Yeah, now, like. it would be completely. And I think, I think when you talk about where Charles was found, we don't know for sure through the forensics whether he actually died there. So it is possible that somebody did leave through the front door because he could have slumped there. We don't know. The forensic simply is not there. Um, the bloody uh, footprint, it's a size seven or eight. Charles was a three or four. Them kind of things would have been investigated more. Um, I, I do think that forensically we there's a lot lacking in this case. Is that because the motivation wasn't there to do a proper forensic speaking to your point? Well, well back in 1982, in fairness to the guards who investigated the case, I mean, their forensic tool bag would have been a lot lighter Limited, than it would yeah. be nowadays. Mm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And there was also the the state of the room, if you want to call it that, or the potential staging that, that was brought up as yeah. well as a, a line as well through the investigation. Yeah, and, and that was something that jumped out at Alan Bailey, who retired now, but he was a detective who looked back on Charles's case. And one of the first things that he noticed looking at the photos of the crime scene was that furniture had been placed quite deliberately in certain areas to make it look like the attack had just taken place in one location as opposed to several. And he found it incredible looking back. And that was just a glance. And he found it incredible looking back to think that that wasn't a theory that was pursued with a little bit more vigour by the team in 1982. Are, are releasing the identikit picture yeah. to to mm. more wider general mm. uh, audience. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's really, mm. I mean, when you think about it, actually, they dropped the ball and it's of a piece with what happened with um, um, two years later, 18 months later with Declan Flynn. Mm. Uh, um, the overarching attitude I get is just that a gay man's life has zero value. So why should we bother? But, you know, I, I was saying this to you before we went on. I think it can be really easy to just use the Gardaí then or now as a whipping boy for all of our outrage. 
and not actually realize that the Guardi, and I said it in the podcast, the Guardi were merely emblematic of a wider societal mm. malaise, yeah. a posturing towards its most vulnerable minorities. Mm. Frank, just you, you've talked about the cold case and you've mentioned that. Like, what comes from that? So the, to give us an insight into how a cold case team works, like they come back, you know, X number of years, 30 odd years on, they sit down, they look at this open, unclosed case they review it and does anything happen then with that like it depends on the case and funnily enough i didn't know an awful lot about this i mean i've called them a cold case unit they're a serious crime review team um and alan bailey was asked to he was one of the people who headed up the first unit and and it's interesting because i suppose you know they looked at charles self's case for the same reason that maybe ashling and i did was because it was far enough back, I suppose, that it deserved a second look, but it wasn't too far back that we wouldn't actually be able to talk to, you know, any of the contributors, the yeah. likes of Bill Maher and whatnot, and, and Alan Bailey, who worked on, on that cold case review. Um, what they will do, they're given access to absolutely everything. There is um, a secure facility in Santry where all of these documents from cold case um, or, or from any murder investigation, unsolved crime, are kept under lock and key. Alan Bailey assured me, because I did wonder if he had eyes on the sketch that Bertie drew of this mystery man who walked into his tax or into his uh, room Boom. and of that identicus that was built in the description of the mystery man in the taxi. He said that he had access to everything. And what he and his team do then is they pour over everything and they make recommendations to the initial investigation team. Clearly, the initial investigation team is no longer around. Mm. Certainly, a lot of them are retired. Um, but it will go back to the Garda station that initially investigated that. And I asked Alan Bailey if he recommended that the sketch and the identikit be published. And he said no. And I found that incredibly difficult to get my head around because as I sit here today, we're still trying to get access to those things with a view to publishing them for a, a wider appeal. Ashling got a response from Garda Press Office ahead of this event today. We've been chasing them. We want to publish them because 40 years on, what's the harm? But Alan Bailey made the point, in fairness, Alan Bailey made the point that they could actually do more harm than good because an identikit in 1982 is a very different animal to an identikit now in 2022 yeah. where you have like all of those technological advances and I got the impression he didn't say it but I got the impression that he didn't think they'd actually bring any value to the story but as Bill Maher was at pains to say as well it's like why not it's 40 years mm -hmm. on now like mm -hmm. if you can jog somebody's memory mm -hmm. or appeal to somebody's guilty conscience I firmly believe Ashley firmly believes Alan Bailey firmly believes I hope all of you here today who listen to the podcast firmly believe that somebody out there knows something yeah. that could actually bring his killer to justice so, so with the review of the serious crime review team is it just that they're just recommendations and it goes back to the yeah. initial investigating guard the station to say that that's great thanks very much we'll stick it in a file you know on a shelf and or, or does anything, like it's headquarters, does anybody get involved? Does anything happen with that? I, I, I don't know why, but I had this image of a cold case unit starting from scratch, going out, knocking on doors, yeah. interviewing people from scratch, looking at a piece of evidence from scratch. That's not what happens. And there are large constraints to why that doesn't happen. The passage of time with people passing on. Bertie passed away back in the mid 90s. You know, clearly they would have liked to go back and speak to him again, weren't in a position to do so. So what Alan Bailey would have done, take for example, he was of the firm belief that the crime scene was staged. Um, so, I mean, he would have gone back to the investigation team with those findings, 
But like all he's able to do really is make recommendations and they are obliged to act on them. That is the one thing that I will say. Right. But as it stands, I mean, that review took place in 2008 and there hasn't been any okay. real development aside from a few public appeals here and there as the years have gone on. And that, I suppose, was a, a big part of, in many ways, producing the podcast was, I suppose, to link in with that appeal, you know, and to Oh, to absolutely. And... The mystery man in the taxi holds the key. Um, another one of Alan Bailey's findings on the back of that cold case review was that he felt that the initial investigation team, and I agree with him, were wrong to assume that he was the suspect. Um, they felt it would have been better if they appealed to him as a witness who potentially saw something, knew something, could mm -hmm. advance their investigation in some way. He's of the firm belief this person would only be in his early to mid 60s. So if this person is still around and knows something, I mean, we really do see the sense in appealing to that person. But that's not the only reason we wanted to tell Charles's story. I mean, as everyone has articulated so well here today, there were so many moving parts and so many interesting elements yeah. to this story. And we've had people coming forward to us. You know, I've had young gay men coming forward and saying to me, I had no idea what it was like to be a gay man in Ireland in the 1980s. I mean, we're not there. There are still elements of the gay community that feel marginalised and feel excluded. We still have some way to go, but we've come an awful long way. Mm. Do you think the case can be solved? Yes, absolutely. Oh. I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have put my heart and soul and my wonderful patient girlfriend <laughs> will attest to this over the past <laughs> couple of months. You know, Ashing and I have been absolutely... a obsessed with this story and we wouldn't have put that much energy into it if we didn't see the greater purpose. Mm -hmm. It's the reason we, we took it on. And there have been those strange elements, those twists of fate that have kind of kept us going along the way. I, I really do think that this is a case that can be solved and it's a case that should be solved. We heard that wonderful montage of clips and Christine Falls talking about Charles as a person who should be remembered and is remembered. And he's also somebody who deserves to truly rest in peace. Tony, how would you like Charles Self to be remembered for people listening to us and, and here with us tonight that have followed the podcast? Somebody who lived, lived a great life, like you did and <laughs> <laughs> a few years later. I mean, I imagine Vincent Hanley's bedroom was the party day. <laughs> Knowing Vincent. Um, but yes, to, to remember him as somebody who, try, 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 who pushed through, who found a way to push through and a very glamorous uh, and occasionally reckless way to push through all of the impositions that were, that were laid on him. I'd also love to think that um, if there was some afterlife that he's looking at us actually egging us on. What do you think um, Hugh Charles would, like how would he kind of interpret tonight, you know, the room well, here. he'd love to be the centre of attraction. <laughs> let's, let's be quite clear. <laughs> Charles was an amazing... Like, I, I didn't know him that well. He was in the periphery of my friendship. But I would have seen him in the Bailey, gone out, gone out with him and uh, Vincent Hanley and a whole other group. And he was most certainly part of the gay community. And in those days, the gay community was one of support. Mm -hmm. So the older generation would look after the younger generation, make sure they didn't... I can attest spray. to that. No, no, but they did, Tony. It was, it was, you're yeah. older than I am, dear. <laughs> no, um, but, but I think what, what to me 
is the real nub of the issue is that even 40 years later and with everything that's gone and with social change and everything else, we as a society still have to pick things out. That to me is the bit that we as a society still haven't grabbed the ability to own up and say, I'm sorry about that. I can't do anything about it, but it's not going to happen Mm -hmm. in the future. It's a fantastic series. I think it's a great credit to the work that yourself and and Ashling and and Lachlan have all put in 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 making the... And can I cut you off there? Because you've just mentioned somebody that I want to pay tribute to too. He's lurking in the shadows there, Lachlan. Um, I think Lachlan deserves a round of applause. Lachlan worked on the soundscaping for all this, but he was very much a part of the team with Ashing and I. And we had a lovely moment after yet another all-nighter that I know Patricia Monin is down there rolling her eyes at um, as we put the final episode to bed. And we were sitting there, and it was actually the first time across both seasons that we all sat there listening to the final draft. And the last six or seven minutes of that fifth and final episode, honestly, hand in heart, is probably the most the, the most proud I've been of anything I have ever done. And Lachlan and Lashin, great credit to both of them, were sitting there, I was almost in tears. I knew exactly what I was going to say and I know exactly how it was going to be delivered. And then Lachlan just sprinkled his magic on it from a soundscape point of view. Yeah. He built the world of Inside the Crime for both seasons and he deserves great credit. Absolutely. <laughs> What's the next podcast? You'll have to ask my agent that. Uh, she's sitting right here. Um, who knows? I mean, the thing that I love about Inside the Crime is that I think we have picked interesting stories. We haven't just told them for the sake of telling them. Mm. There has always been a greater purpose in telling them. We've met some incredible people along the way. They're time consuming, but the rewards far outweigh yeah. all of the work that goes into to these things like we absolutely obsess over them and if there is to be a season three we'll have to spend some time trying to top this story because this has really been an honor and a privilege to get to know Charles through all the amazing friends and people that he worked with and all the memories that they have kindly uh, shared with us has been one of the greatest honors of my life I know we don't have our ending yet but I really, really hope that someday we do. Well, I think on that note, we'll wrap it for this evening. Um, to Frank, I want to thank as well, of course, our panel here tonight too, Tony Walsh, Trino O'Connor and Hugh Wallace, Frank Rainey, Ashling Murray, Lachlan Hart. Congratulations and well done. Thank you. Well done. Now you can enjoy your Charles Boston. <laughs> <Thank> you, Charles. <laughs>